Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. It is a particular delight for us to welcome back to the TMC seminar, um, someone who has been a, a remarkable mentor, colleague, and friend to us, uh, a number of us as uh, TMC faculty. John Swinton is professor of practical theology and pastoral care and chair of divinity and religious studies at the University of Aberdeen. For more than a decade, John worked as a registered mental health nurse. He also worked for a number of years as a hospital and community mental health chaplain, walking alongside people with severe mental health challenges, particularly as they were moving from the hospital into the community. In 2004, Dr. Swinton founded the University of Aberdeen's Center for Spirituality, Health, and Disability. He has published widely within the areas of mental health, dementia, disability theology, spirituality and healthcare, qualitative research, pastoral care, even as he and I were discussing a moment ago, the problem of evil. John is the author of a number of books, including Becoming Friends of Time, Disability, Timefulness, and Gentle Discipleship, and his most recent book, Finding Jesus in the Storm, The Spiritual Lives of People with Mental Health Challenges, published just last year. His book, Dementia, Living in the Memories of God, won the Archbishop of Canterbury's Ramsey Prize for Excellence in Theological Writing. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Swinton, uh, who will be speaking to us uh, about thinking about theology and mental health, Bible, spirit, and church. Welcome. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, a good piece of my heart lies uh, in Duke. Over the years, I've, I've made a lot of friends, I learned a lot of things from people. Uh, and so Duke's a good place. And so it's, it's always nice to, even at this distance, to be a part of what's going on. Today, I'm going to be um, thinking about mental health. I'm going to share my screen. If you, Ben, could you let me share my screen, please? What I want to do today is to think about what a theology of mental health might actually look like. Um, and the way that we're going to do this is by thinking about a particular way of researching that has come to be significant in my uh, ministry stroke, professional careers of theology, which opens up the area of experience uh, as a place where you can learn things that you can't learn from other places. And in terms of mental health, that's really very important because we're thinking about how can we learn things uh, from theology and bring these things that we can learn to the fore that we can't learn from other places. So the, the basic background to what I'm going to be talking about today lies in a developing perspective called theological ethnography. 
Uh, and the ethnography and theological ethnography really refers to any kind of qualitative research. So it's kind of broad based. So theological ethnography is a way of using uh, qualitative research methods for theological ends. Uh, theological ethnography takes the presence of God as a given reality. In other words, it doesn't seek to bracket out God and the spiritual from the empirical research process. These two things are assumed to be held together, but not in a correlative way, but in a way that is, is, is genuinely theological. So theological ethnography relates to closely to systematic and philosophical theology, in that it takes seriously doctrine and systematic forms of knowledge and reasoning, but does, not, but does so in a combination with empirical methods of inquiry. So in the same way as you might apply rigor to exploring the writings of Augustine, Cohen, Lacuna, Bart, with critical care and rigor, it seeks to understand the nature of God's revelation to be able to tease out how we understand revelation in relation to people's experiences. So it assumes that God is doing things in the, in the now and that part of the theological task is to, to look at these things, explore them and to understand them. So in particular, uh, uh, I want us to think about the way in which we describe the world. So it's interesting that when you think about description, because theological ethnography is all about how you describe things and the, the sense you make of your descriptions. So think about the practice of description. What we believe about the world will determine how we look at it. So the way that we describe the world determines how we look at it. How we look at the world will determine how we name it. And how we name something in the world will determine how we respond to it. So the way in which we describe something is really important. If you take that in the context of diagnosis, the way that you, the, the, the meaning of that description of a diagnosis tells you what you think you see, and then what you think you see will determine uh, how you respond to that. So describing things is important. So theological ethnography tries to get uh, particular theological descriptions of things. And so the question that <clears throat> I want us to think about today is what might it look like if we describe mental health challenges theologically? What does it look like if we give a theological description? Nothing wrong with psychiatry, nothing wrong with psychology, all necessary at part of, of mental health and bringing about well-being for people. But what does theology bring to the table and what do theological descriptions bring to the table of healing? And the way uh, I'm going to do this is by sharing some uh, of the findings from a piece of research I did uh, over the past few years, which took a phenomenological approach. Now, phenomenolo phenomenology is a, uh, an aspect of um, philosophy and also a qualitative research method within which um, you try as best you can to put to one side the thing, what you expect to see of a phenomenon and try to see the thing in and of itself. So you, in terms of mental health, which is our focus today, you put to one side the things that you expect a diagnostic criterion or diagnostic description to give to you, put that to one side and listen to people's experience and allow that experience to give you fresh new perspectives and insights into what it is. So within uh, uh, phenomenology, uh, the body is kind of seen in two different ways, the material body and the lived bodies. And this is important in terms of how we think about mental health. So the, the material body is that which medicine, neurology, psychiatry 
tends to focus on at least a certain form of psychiatry tends to focus on. And so that's the new, that's the reasons why you may be experiencing particular moods or particular hearing things or whatever it is. So you get to that neurological explanation. Uh, the problem sometimes is that when we get to that neurological or biological explanation, we think we know what it is and we stop there. And phenomenology says, yep, it's important, your material body is significant, but so is your uh, lived body. The way in which that neurological body, that biological body enters into the world, relates, moves around, and the way in which you experience things. And it's in that lived dimension that you begin to see some really important theological insights that emerge from uh, the experiences of mental health challenges as, as described by those who live through them. So my main focus today is going to be on uh, depression, simply because depression is, is obviously it's common, but it's something that we, we being most of it in some senses, use uh, to describe many different things. So it's Monday morning, oh, I'm feeling depressed because I've got to go back to work. Something goes wrong, oh, I'm feeling depressed. And so the language of depression is kind of enculturated and what but when you actually spend time with someone who lives with depression, then you can see that that kind of superficial, almost flippant use of the term depression begins to be challenged. So I want us to begin just by listening to some people who experience depression and begins, begins to push against these kinds of caricatures of what depression is. And then I want us to think about how that helps us to think theologically about depression. So what do we mean when we ascribe the description of depression? Well, one of the things I did in this, in this, this study that I, I was engaged in, was I asked people, you know, how, how, tell me what it feels like to be, to, to be depressed. Tell me the kinds of experiences that they, you are. So I'll give you a sense of the kind of responses that people would give to you, give to me. So feeling depressed, we naturally, in inverted commas, we think that the language that articulates depression as I'm feeling depressed is accurate. But actually for many people, the idea of feeling depressed is actually a misnomer. Because depression is an anti-feeling rather than a feeling. So this, this person here says, um, depression is not a feeling, it's almost an anti-feeling. And that's why it's so frustrating when people say, what have you got to be sad about? Or just pull yourself out of it. And you're like, that's not how it works. Depression strips away your ability to emote. And when I say emote, that's not expressive emotion, that's internal emotion. It's, it's possible to be able to look as if you're expressing emotion, but actually not be able to articulate it within yourself. So it's not that you feel depressed. It's actually depression strips you of any kind of feeling in that way. Likewise, we very often talk about depression as a manifestation of deep, deep sadness. So you and I know what sadness is, and depression clearly, in inverted commas, is a form of sadness. But again, for many people, 
it's much more than, in fact, for me, some people, it's not sadness at all. So this woman says, you can feel sad as an effect of depression. I sat and cried because of how I felt, not because I was sad. I was sad because of the way I was feeling, not because I was sad. In and of itself, depression made me sad. Sadness is actually a positive description of an emotional state. And for me, depression is a negative corruption of emotion. Sadness is something that you know will pass, but depression is something different. And so there's almost like there's a craving for sadness here, because at least if you're feeling sad, the chances are you'll know why. But with depression, it's not like that. It's just this darkness without recognizing why. And so this is the way that people articulated the relationship between depression and sadness. Depression is really muted. It's an inability to feel sadness, you, you know. It's not that it's beyond sadness, because when I think of the phrase beyond sadness, that's it's like on the same road. You pass sadness and you go further. I think they're two different roads entirely. Yet sadness is when you're depressed, all of your emotions are very muted. You can't really feel angry. You can't feel sadness. You can't desire anything, which is what I mean when I say I long for sadness. Sadness is a wonderful healing feeling that I rarely get. And so you can see when you get into that deep experience with people, the kind of day-to-day -day language, the day-to-day -day descriptions of what depression is shift and change. And we realize that we are actually describing it in ways that are at best inaccurate. But one of the most interesting things, and bearing in mind that everybody in the study that I'm talking to you about today was Christian, because it's a study of Christians who live with mental health challenges. One of the most painful things for people was the removal of joy. And so this, this gentleman says, depression for me was an overwhelming absence of things feeling like I will never feel joy again. That's not an uncommon experience for me, even now, despite the medication and everything. Just a removal of joy. It's just a privation. I can understand why suicide comes in because just feeling like you don't feel anything is just awful. An absence of joy and an absence of rest. These people just get exhausted. But it's that idea there of, that just a removal of joy. It's that idea there that I think takes us into the theological dimensions of depression in an interesting way. What does it mean to have your joy removed? Well, very often we think of joy as happiness, that somehow when scripture talks about joy, it tells us to be happy. But actually the inference here is that joy is something different. It's interesting, in Galatians 5.22, Paul lays out the fruit of the Spirit. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Nowhere there does he say happiness. So happiness is not a fruit of the Spirit. It may be something that we desire. It may be a nice thing. But the reality is, it's a fleeting emotion that comes and goes depending on our circumstances. 
And that's not what joy is. So joy is a gift. Joy is not synonymous with happiness. Joy has durability. In other words, it's not determined by your happiness. It's not determined by your wellness. There's something else there. So we're called to be happy. We're not called to be happy, but we are called to be joyful. But what does that mean? Well, Karl Barth makes an interesting statement on, on joy here. He says, Jesus Christ enters human existence as the great joy, which has all shall be to all people. He breaks down this resistance to grace by himself appearing as grace, triumphant, as the royal removal of our sin and guilt by the action of God himself. Because our sin and guilt are now in the heart of God, they're no longer exclusively ours. Because he bears them, the suffering and the punishment for them are lifted from us, and our own suffering can only be a reminiscence of him. And then continues, as he takes to himself our sin and guilt in his son, we are free from the necessity of seeing and suffering and lamenting, except as his and by faith in him. That is, except as a burden of sin and guilt, which is lifted from us by him. It remains for us only to be the sinners whose place he has taken, and who must therefore really have their life in him. So what Bart's saying, amongst other things in there, is that Jesus is our joy. Joy is not an emotion. It's not something that would whip up. It's not something that is determined simply by circumstances. It has durability because Jesus has durability. And you can see that in the way that the scripture talks about it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. But James one too. but James is not saying be really happy when horrible things happen. But he's saying your joy will not abandon you even when difficulties come. Um, Hebrews 12, 2, fixing their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and, sat, and has sat down at the right hand of God. So joy contains and sometimes necessitates suffering and sadness. So you can lose your joy in the sense that, that, that you, you, when you enter into uh, suffering and sadness, you can lose that connection with your joy. But it's not determined by happiness, it's determined by something slightly different. And I want us to think about that idea of losing your joy. Because that's much more than just being sad, it's much more than simply being depressed. There's a deep spiritual element there that we need to tease out. What does it mean to lose your joy? If Jesus is our joy. And so I want us to think a little bit about what we might describe as a spirituality of darkness. And by that, I simply mean that when we think about spirituality, and particularly contemporary spirituality, we think about happiness and joy and throwing our hands in the air with delight. But actually, whilst that's important, I, I love that myself, but there is a spirituality of sadness in scripture that we shouldn't lose sight of. And it's profoundly important in relation to making sense of the experience of depression. Because one of the things that came out of the study very clearly, and it won't be a surprise to anybody uh, in this Zoom room, is that Christians don't always respond positively to people who live with mental health challenges and to people who live with depression. So people will say things like, 
uh, you know, if you had just a little bit more faith, this wouldn't happen to you. If you just prayed a little harder, this wouldn't happen to you. If you read your Bible more thoroughly, this wouldn't happen to you. And so what happens then is that people create theodicies, explanations of God and suffering, uh, 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 and place them upon people who are going through really difficult times. So you actually heap coals upon people who are suffering. But apart from the fact that that's probably not a very helpful thing to do, is it accurate? Is that the way to think about a spirituality of depression? So this lady here said, puts it that her, her sense of absence that she has. The sense of absence is oftentimes a, a primary problem for everybody, uh, but for Christians in particular, that sense of being abandoned by God. And she says, if you can't feel the presence of God, then that's throughout scripture, the presence of God is considered the rock. You know, that's your foundation. I mean, for Job to Jer Jeremiah, to what Christ talks about, and if you can't have that, it's really disenchanting. It's really bewildering. And she was really wrestling with that. Like, because no, she, people have said that to her, these kind of negative things to her. And she's thinking to herself, well, maybe they're right. Maybe it is, maybe, maybe it is something that I've done. Maybe there is something I should do or something I shouldn't have done. Uh, and she becomes disenchanted. She becomes bewildered because she feels in the midst of that that God has abandoned her and that it's somehow her fault. Now, if we take that and that, that way of thinking and that, that experience and begin to think about it in the context of scripture, an interesting tension begins to emerge. So in an example would be Deuteronomy 4.31. For the Lord your God is merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. So you have that statement of like that where God will never abandon you. Paul, Apostle Paul says the same thing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And yet, Isaiah here, 45, 15 says, truly you are a God who's been hiding himself, the God and savior of Israel. So you have a God who's present and at the same time you've got a God who's hiding himself. The strange tension, we tend to focus very much on the God who's present. But the God who hides is certainly part of our tradition. And then when you move into the Psalms of Lamentation, you begin to see that becomes more and more profound. You know, as you'll know, there are more Psalms of Lamentation in Scripture than any other, uh, any other uh, Psalm. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls the Book of Psalms the prayer book of the Bible. In the prayer book of the Bible, most of the, 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 the prayers are about pain and suffering and alienation from God. The psalmist understood that sense of abandonment. The psalmist understood that sense of disappointment in God and wasn't, uh, it didn't hold back in terms of articulating that, sometimes in very violent and difficult ways. But one passage that always fascinates me is uh, Psalm 88, which is one of the, the darkest psalms. I mean, most of the lament psalms do go through this huge articulate of, of anger and sadness and bitterness and disappointment, but they usually resolve in the middle with the psalmist recognizing God has said, God's unending love, and the psalmist goes on to worship, but not Psalm 88. And Psalm 88 ends, darkness is my only companion. Uh, and there's something really, really important in that, because the psalmist there is not talking into the void, 
he's praying, he's talking to God. His problem is not that he has a crisis of faith. His problem is that he feels disconnected from God. That connection, which was so wonderful and beautiful to him at some point, has been broken. And darkness is all that he can find. And it's, it's important to get that distinction. It's not necessarily a crisis of faith. It's a sense of disconnection, which is exactly the way that people living with depression oftentimes feel when they, they feel abandoned by God, disconnected. No matter how much I try, I can't find that connection. So it's not a crisis of faith, something else. It's a disconnection there that's going on. And the psalmist says, hey, this is how I feel too. And you see the same thing in the cry of desolation of Jesus. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and he, I mean, he quotes Psalm 22. But the key thing in there, well, two key things in there. One, uh, three key things in there. One, there's no answer comes back. It's not like God bursts in and says, it's okay, I really am here. It's just left hanging there. That sense of abandonment is just left hanging there. The second thing to notice is the change in language that Jesus uses. You know, uh, in his earlier ministry, uh, it's been Abba Father, a closeness, a tender love. But now in this time of desolation, his language changes. It's God, why have you forsaken me? God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and that, so it's not like Jesus was pretending to feel abandoned. He felt completely abandoned. And one of the interesting things that came out of the, the, the conversations that I had with people who live with depression in this particular study was this. People felt sometimes very difficult to identify or to find God in the midst of that. But some people could identify with Jesus. So even in the midst of the darkness, Jesus was there. God didn't take Jesus off the cross, as one, one person put it. Jesus shares in that sense of abandonment. But also in sharing in that sense of abandonment uh, enables us to see that feeling abandoned is not necessarily a product of sin or a product of something that we haven't done. It's actually part of our tradition for God to hide, for people to feel abandoned, for even Jesus to feel abandoned. It's not unusual. It's not pathological. It's not a huge crisis in a, in a, of a, a, a self-inflicted spiritual wound. It's something else. So there's a whole spiritual tradition there that uh, we rarely preach and teach about. But actually, if we did preach and teach, talk about it more often, then perhaps when people hit the storms of depression, uh, some of these unhelpful questions will just no longer be part of that process. And so thinking about that spirituality of sadness, I think, is something that's important in relation to how best we can be with people going through difficulties like depression. Uh, and one of the places where we can learn to uh, how to uh, be with people, if you like, in darkness is, is worship. I mean, worship is really complicated. Um, and very beautiful. Like I, 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 was, I had some conversations with the TMC people last night, and I, I described myself as a, I'm a, I'm a cross between a Presbyterian and a Pentecostal, a Pentecostal. So I'm kind of Presbycostal. 
So I'm a minister of the Church of Scotland that loves Pentecostal worship. So I don't know what that makes me um, unusual, interesting, not interesting. But at my church, uh, we rarely sing sad songs. We rarely sing lament songs. And when we do, we sing them in a spirit of celebration. You know, you give and take away, you give and take away. And you know, it's, it's, you've got to overcome sadness for sadness to have any kind of place in your worship. And so it's very difficult for people to articulate lamentation. It's very difficult for people to be there and simply to be sad and broken. Because if you feel sad and broken, the, the, the temptation is happiness equals faith. Sadness equals, well, not quite sure, but not faith as that we understand it. And that came up a, a kind of dynamic of uh, feeling difficult to articulate sadness and worship came up quite a lot in uh, the, the, the conversations that I had. I'll give you one example of a, one of the conversations. This is a woman who lives with enduring depression and has really difficult times sometimes. And she says, but she's a very convinced Christian. She says, um, but it was also difficult because our church is also charismatic evangelical. And so there's a lot of happy clappiness, which when you're depressed and crying is just awful. Yeah. But I mean, Sundays in church were excruciating. Just turn up, worship, listen to the preacher, and then run away. Or cry during the ministry time, uh, or, or cry during the ministry time. Just dealing with people was so overwhelming. You can live authentically, she says, with you can you can live authentically with depression, but she says we need to find a language to talk about depression that is spiritually meaningful for people rather than the falsities of joy as joy that equals happiness. False joy is a terrifying thing if you're depressed because it's something you actually learn to mimic to survive, and if you start mimicking your spiritual life then you're in real trouble. So you can see how it, it, it would work itself out. You're in a, a context where the expectation is for happiness, which is oftentimes equated as joy, which is oftentimes equated with faithfulness, and you're feeling terrible. But how do you deal with that? Well, I have to pretend. I have to pretend I'm happy. I have to pretend I'm joyful. But underneath, something completely different is going on. But then she says, but thankfully, our worship leader is he's a guy who really believes in let's have worship which talks about how rotten life can be which i really like and so while this happy clappiness uh, what, what, one of the interesting things about when you're doing quality research is you realize that very often most of us don't speak in logical sentences it's just that we don't notice it so she says and so while this happy clappiness he'll often be a Sunday of lament, where we'll all just wail and go, life is awful, which really freed me up. It was incredibly helpful. But then saying that, actually, it was also really helpful to be in a congregation of people who are just worshiping God, still being happy clappy, still being hopeful. When I was just like this, I just can't do this. Because it meant they were like, well, you can't do it, but we can do it for you. Which I really appreciated. People would be standing alongside me in prayer, like during the worship time, they'd have a hand on my shoulder, 
where they were, uh, while they were just fully singing, worshiping, and rejoicing. And I was just a wreck, crying. But I found that incredibly profound because it's that sense of someone's willing to be beside me. And yet they were not forgetting the truth that I couldn't hold on to at that point. That strikes me as a, as a very beautiful lineage of the body of Christ, where one person is broken, one person can't worship, one person feels disconnected from God, even though they have that desire to be with Jesus. Well, worship for them. Hold them in your worship. Hold them in your prayer. Hold them until they can find their joy. Don't condemn them for not having the things that you think are important. Hold them. Place them in, a, in that space where their hearts can be warmed, even in the midst of difficult times. So holding on to joy uh, is the thing I want to think about. Uh, what does it mean to uh, stay with Jesus in the midst of really difficult times? So what I, I've tried to show you uh, in this uh, presentation is the way that theological ethnography can open up spaces to help us to understand things that in different contexts seem obvious. And when we, when we get beyond the obviousness, then we find there's a richness there. There's questions to be asked, there's questions to be raised, there's experiences which actually help us to understand scripture and tradition in ways that perhaps we wouldn't be able to understand. Um, but there's also a healing in listening carefully to people's stories because it pushes us away from stigma. It pushes away from false theologies that actually cause damage rather than healing and helps us to discover things to discover beauty in darkness, to discover the presence of Jesus even in the midst of abandonment, to discover that joy is not just being happy all the time, but it's actually holding on to Jesus in the midst of the wildest storms that you're going through. And when you can't hold on, you have people around you that hold on for you until they can pull you back into that boat and that place of safety. So I hope that, uh, that some of these things that I've talked about are, are useful. I'm happy now to uh, answer any questions or, or whatever. Dr. Swinton, thank you. Um, I found myself, as you were speaking at different points, laughing and at, at other points choked up thinking about um, some of what the people you were listening to were saying. Um, I'll remind our participants that if you'd like uh, to ask Dr. Swinton a question, you can just um, use the, the uh, reactions button at the bottom right to raise your hand. And when you do that, I should see that. Although I don't see, I'm not seeing other folks in the gallery view. Um, let me see here. Now I am. Um, I should see that and we'll call on you. As we're waiting, um, I have a question that was put through the chat, Dr. Swinton, which is um, the question is about this reframing of depression as lack of ability to emote rather than an exaggerated sadness. How are we then to think about what drugs like SSRIs are doing to help with depression? And are there spiritual disciplines such as reading the Psalms that may exercise our emotional brain that might help a depressed person? Yeah, and I think that, that, that both of these questions are really good questions. On the first question, I think that uh, one of the, 
it's interesting because what I noticed in, in the people I spoke to, there's two different models of health that run in parallel through their lives. So there's, if you like, the, the biomedical model, uh, which has a particular understanding of health, and then there's a theological model, which has a particular understanding of health. So, so uh, the way in which a, a drug, uh, uh, like you, you mentioned, would be assessed in terms of its effic efficacy would be determined by uh, what you think health is. So if you think health is, is uh, getting rid of symptoms, or if you think health is getting to a certain level of, of mood or whatever it is, then that's the way that you'll, you'll gauge that. And so therefore, you, somebody will be healthy or re reacting healthfully to the medication when they achieve the goals that, that you think uh, in relation to your health. Um, whereas a, a, a biblical model of health doesn't really function in that way. Uh, so there's no kind of there's no bi there's no biblical term for a, a biomedical understanding of health is the absence of illness. So I, I like to work with the idea of, of shalom, which means justice and righteousness, uh, which has really interesting political dimensions. But it means um, righteousness and holiness. So to be healthy is to be in right relationship with God. It's nothing to do with your symptoms because you can be very healthy in the midst of your symptoms. It's not, it's not to do with simply with getting rid of symptoms. People oftentimes want to get rid of symptoms, but that's not the point. The point is to be healthy is to be in right relationship with God. So you can be somebody who's a, an athlete uh, and you can be really unwell. You can be somebody who's at the end of their lives, uh, just about to die, and you can be really healthy in that way. Uh, and so if that theological dimension for Christians is not taken into consideration, then their level of health will be gauged by something quite different. And the assumption will be that once these criteria are fulfilled, you are healthy. Whereas actually from the person experience, it may be may quite different. So I think working with these two models of health and thinking that through in terms of prescribing is probably something that's worthwhile considering. In other words, ask people, you know, what they want from the medication rather than what you might want. Mm. Uh, but the, on the other point, yeah, I mean, certainly a, a, a lot, that, uh, certainly a, a number, not a lot, actually, that's, a number of people that I spoke to uh, found the Psalms of Lament a very helpful way of articulating the sadness. So when they were uh, unable to find words to, to talk out the sadness, the Psalms did that, uh, at least at a certain level. But when people got into a real deep level of, of, of um, depression, they tended not to be able to, to concentrate, tend not to be able to read the Psalms in the way that they do. Uh, in that context, other people can read to you, but at, that, at the same time, you, you're not really able to do that yourself. Um, the other dimension, which is an important dimension, is that sometimes when you're uh, in the, the, the depths of depression, you can begin to read scripture very negatively. Uh, so, uh, you know, um, passages like darkness is my only companion can compound that darkness that you, you feel in that sense. And you, you can ruminate in that and run around in circles for that for a long time. And sometimes, I mean, it's interesting, the person that I learned this from was Richard Baxter, the Puritan preacher. Uh, who, uh, for whom scripture is absolutely centered to everything that, that he does. And he says, he's done some interesting work on, on depression. He says, sometimes when you're going through the melancholy, as he puts it, it's necessary to put scripture to one side for a moment because uh, uh, it, it's, it's only going to damage you. And to get other people to read 
uh, health bringing passages of scripture to you until that time when you can come back and read it healthily in that way. He says, if you break your leg, you wouldn't walk about in it. So why would it be any different for your mind? So the answer is yes, these are good for meditation, but also there's another dimension that we need to keep an eye on. I have a question. We have a question from Mary Sophia Hawks. Mary Sophia, can you unmute and- Yes. Hi, Carr. Um, good to see you. Uh, there we go. Um, thank you, Dr. Swinton. Uh, this is excellent. And as an RN who has dealt with depression for part of her life, I wanted to tell you, you got it right. Um, <laughs> it is very much a separation and you do feel separated from God. And um, back to the previous question, the, the SSRI that I take has helped me reconnect to that joy and be able to refuel God's presence in my life. I found Psalms very helpful because even though David can really lament, he always comes back to the fact, even so, God, I know you're with me. Right. And that became my mantra to myself after my husband committed suicide. I would come back to, I would write for pages, but I would come back to, even so, God, even though I can't feel you, I know you're with me. And yeah. so this is a wonderful way to look at this. And, and you're right. Sometimes you just need people to come along and take you to lunch and not ask anything else of you. And sometimes you need scripture. And sometimes you just sit and say, okay, God, Holy Spirit, pray for me because I can't get there. So thank you very much. I appreciate your work. I'm very interested in your center. Um, that's fabulous. Thank you, Mary Sophia. Uh, Stanley Harawas, do you have a question? You can unmute Stanley. There we go. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. How are you, John? I'm doing well, Stanley. Thank you. It's good to hear you. Uh, I wanted far as part with part of my question, and it has to do with medication and how description invites the importance of medication and how um, that involves obviously your two different models of of health, yeah. but when you're living with someone that's mentally ill, um, any medication you got that can get you through the day, they want to use. And I just wondered how on a daily basis, the conflict between those two models works out in terms of therapy. I think it's, it's difficult and it's, it's sometimes difficult for, for Christians because there are certain strands of theology that say that Christians shouldn't take medication. However, I think that's, that's, that's a mistake. Uh, and the way, the way I, I think about it is if you're in, in end life care and in great pain, nobody ever thinks about not giving you medication, at least not under normal circumstances. And what pain does is it, it separates you from yourself and separates you from your community. I mean, I think it was Stanley, it was you that said once said, pain is the enemy of community and separates you from God. 
so what what good pain relief does is it reconnects you in that sense. So it, it has it has a spiritual function in the sense that it takes away that horrible focus on your, your pain and allows you to reconnect with other people. And I think that uh, psychiatric psychotropic medication does the same thing. I think. Uh, extreme psych psychological distress, separation and psychological pain, separation from yourself and from others and from God. And so medication, if it's given uh, faithfully, can help to, to reconnect. Now, what I mean by that is that uh, there's lots of reasons why people are given medication. Um, uh, uh, but the primary reason should be for the, for the, for the welfare of the individual. And so if you're a prescriber, the reason you're giving somebody medication is to help them to reconnect, to flourish, to be, come back into contact with self, others, and with God. And that should be the primary motive for giving medication. And when that is a primary motive for giving medication, then you, you have a kind of faithful approach that can hold together these two kinds of models. Now, a question would be whether or not that's the way that medication is always uh, uh, prescribed and always uh, uh, given to people, uh, and that's a challenge. Really. But I think for those Christians who are, are thinking about um, medication, uh, either receiving or giving it, then there is a spirituality in there that, that, that they can actually make it a constructive thing that enables the individual to flourish. We have a question from Annie Brown, who's a counselor studying uh, third article theology in New Zealand and asks, does John have any thoughts specifically on the Holy Spirit in the midst of mental health challenges, this dimension of God that isn't absent, but does not necessarily, but not necessarily always felt? To be honest with you, I don't, but, but I think I really, like, I, I really appreciate the question because part of my next project is to think about the role of the Holy Spirit, because I mean, there is there are, the Holy Spirit does get drawn into a lot of stuff in terms of counselling, in terms of uh, certain ways of understanding deliverance, for example. But I think there's a broader range for the Spirit. But when you look at the literature on theology and mental health, it tends to be Jesus and God, and very little about the Holy Spirit. So I don't have an answer to that question just now, but I hope to have in six months' time. And we will look forward to that book that follows six months after that. That's right. Brett McCarty, go ahead. Brett, you're, hey, in, the you're in a forest. Uh, That's great. Yes, yes. Uh, it's great to see you. And I, uh, we've missed having you in person. And I hope that that can happen again sometime soon. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I wanted to ask, I guess, pull three threads together. One, um, uh, what I love about some work in ethnography is its ability to connect up these kind of first person modes of perceiving the world with the ways that um, different structures and practices and organizations and social context um, make possible those modes of perception and, and modes of action in the world. Uh, so there's this connection between the kind of first person account and the wider landscape within which that person um, is operating. Uh, uh, that can happen, I guess. And th the second thing is, um, last year we had uh, Bruce Rogers Vaughn uh, in our TMC seminar series, whose book Caring for Souls in a Neoliberal Age talks about anxiety and depression in the context of what he would describe as, you know, neoliberal capitalism um, and the way that 
economic pressures are bound up in the creation of what we would call you know, mental illness. Um, and I guess finally, the Psalms of Lament that you described, I'm, I'm, I'm struck so often in reading them that there are clear enemies that the psalmist has in mind, and the Lord in the past has moved mightily against those enemies, and the psalmist is calling upon the Lord to move mightily in the present. And, and I think that connects up some of this question of the kind of landscape within which um, a cry of lament or an expression of depression might, might be present. Um, so all that to say, out of your work or all that to ask, uh, do you have any sense of kind of creative and interesting fateful pathways of action for communities surrounding folks who, um, who are experiencing depression or folks who are experiencing depression themselves that, that connect up that first person account with this wider context in ways that show forth new, new pathways of action in a, in a social key? Thank you. That's, that's, that's a good question. I mean, the only thing I would suggest, and that's quite a useful suggestion, is the one person I spoke with, uh, he lived with depression. And what he did, he, he and his, he and his uh, pastor got together and they um, created a liturgy that focused specifically on uh, depression. And so the prayers were on depression, there were songs on depression, the sermons on depression, and they just preached it that day. Uh, and afterwards, after that service, uh, numerous people came to me and said, you know, I've lived with depression for a long time, and I've never felt able to, to speak it out. Indeed, I, I thought that I, I was just a bad Christian. Uh, so thank you for doing that. So my sense would be the way to connect the, 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 these kind of narrative perspectives with your liturgical perspective is to incorporate it into your worship, but intentionally. Yeah, I mean, so have an intentional initiative to talk about these things. And you'll probably be surprised at what kind of a response you get. And that's a beginning point, because as soon as you can, if, once you can talk about something, once it's on the public agenda, then it becomes less stigmatised, it becomes less difficult, uh, and people start to listen to stories in different ways. And the second thing, and connected with that is, um, one of the things that strikes me about John's Gospel is the idea of testament, testimony. You know, it's all about testimony. Tell your story, stand up in court and tell what the Lord has done. Uh, and I'm a great fan of testimony. But the problem with testimony oftentimes in a church context is it's always told by the winners. It's always told by people who have had this great experience and who've overcome this. I wonder whether there's a space for the, the testimony of lament, lamentation. I mean, that's, that's a brave thing to do. But it, having that, I, I, creating an atmosphere where you can actually testify to difficult things as well as testifies to wonderful things. And again, when people hear that, and it does take courageous people to do that. You know, you'll, you'll find a significant percentage of any congregation will identify with that. So these kind of liturgical acts, I think, are really important. John, we have a question from Cliff Warner, uh, a pastor in Austin, Texas, who asks, how do we tease out depression, dark night of the soul, mental illness, and, and separately, where does the the term disability apply to these. And I'll just say, John, adding my own to that, I, I found myself thinking about Mother Teresa's, uh, you know, journals that were found that expressed this profound absence uh, of God, like you described. And 
and curious, yeah, is do you are these separable? Is it helpful to separate them? And um, how do we do that? I think the only way you can separate them is, is, is through spiritual direction, because the dark night of the soul ultimately is a chastening, a, a developing, it's moving towards a positive spirituality or a positive understanding of who God is, whereas depression doesn't really function in that way. So I, I think perhaps thinking in terms of, of um, spiritual direction, one of the things that I, that's quite helpful is thinking about the idea of retrospective spiritual direction. So somebody comes through a psychotic episode or somebody comes through a, a deep depressive episode. In the midst of that, you can't make any sense of it, but afterwards you can. So if you, if you take that idea of spiritual direction and try to look at what's happened in that experience, because very often people have really profound experiences of God as well as of losing God. What has durability, what lasts, what is it that can be learned from that? And you can't get that when you're in the middle of it, but you can, you can when people tell their stories afterwards. So developing a, a, a space for a spiritual direction, full stop, but that retrospective spiritual direction, I think helps you to discern the, that, the, the nature between these two things. Is this a, a, a spiritual experience that's got a fantastic outcome, or is it just something that's really difficult for people to live with? So that's one way in which you can do that. John, John, let me just add a question there, because earlier we were talking about um, the, the difference between a biomedical account of health as the absence of disease, which you, you argued is an insufficient account of health or certainly not a biblical account, which has more to do with the flourishing and, and salvation that folks are experiencing. But there are a number of folks on this call are healthcare practitioners. What, how would you put into words what you take their peace to be if they're i'm guessing it does not necessarily include spiritual direction but their part in responding faithfully to people who present with these kinds of mental health challenges well i think just remembering that yes you you have a, a certain training and yes biomedicine is extremely important and we arguing about that but also as, as Christians, there's, there's something else you're looking for. So the, go back to the, the, the uh, issue of prescribing. Ask yourself, why am I prescribing this? Is it to because it's better for the, the ward? Is it because it's better for the individual? Is it because it's better for the family? I'm beginning to think, how can I use this pharmaceutical intervention to enable this person to uh, 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 experience life and all its fullness in the way that Jesus does. So asking these spiritual questions, your, your actual practice will be the same, but if you ask these spiritual questions and have these in mind as you're going through these apparently technical procedures, then you can begin to see that, that your, your attitude and the way in which you respond to individuals, particularly in, in the context of mental health, will shift and change. And the way that you use medication will become a tool for good in that way, rather than something that is, is pro problematic either for the patient or for, for you. So I guess that that's one example of how you could begin to do that. I'm gonna take as our final question, this one um, that was put in the text um, from someone who says, I'm an older adult with bipolar disease. I've read most of your book, which has been tremendously insightful. Where do people with mental health struggles turn for understanding and for spiritual journey? My Christian community is loving, but in a very intellectual way, um, says we need to try harder. Of course, God loves you. 
where does one turn for how to move forward? Yeah, well, that's very difficult. I mean, I, I, there is certainly uh, a need for educating congregations around issues of, of mental health. And whilst, I mean, I, I don't know this gentleman, so I, I can't say you can turn to here or turn to there. But I think as a general, in general, there are some really interesting, good materials for churches. So I do some work with uh, an organisation called Sanctuary Ministries, which is Vancouver based, but they, they, they now have a, a branch in the UK. And their sole intention is to bring together theology and psychology, psychology and psychiatry uh, in a way that uh, enables congregations to really accept people and to become places of belonging in the way that, that the congregation you mentioned would be struggling to be. So a resource part like that is a beginning point for changing the, the, the atmosphere of congregations. So that's a suggestion, but actually where you go uh, is more complicated because I don't know the geography. I'm going to actually throw in one more question because I think it's helpful to close uh, the loop, if you will, on something you were talking about. What about for spiritual directors who are running into these this same set of experiences? How do they know when what they're dealing with is something they need to get help for from medical practitioners? Well, I've been thinking about that recently, uh, not so much in, in terms of spiritual directors, but more in terms of pastors, but that would include spiritual directors. And I was thinking in the UK, I'm not just, I don't know if you've ever come, come across bailing groups. They're kind of psycho, psych, psychotherapy-based groups where what happens is that different professions get together and discuss a case, and then they, can, they come up with a particular way of solving it. One of the ways in which certain, some congregations work with the, that book is, is that they'll have a pastoral, they'll, they'll meet regularly, but they'll have a pastoral situation where there's, a, there's a, a challenging situation. They'll bring together psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, pastoral carers, ministers, to discuss this particular uh, situation. And in that interdisciplinary conversation, come up with a possible way forward. And, and spiritual direction could be a, an aspect of that. So if a spiritual director was really trying to, struggling to work that out, then he could go into that kind of group and discuss that. So that, that does happen. And that's one way in which a spiritual director could find support and guidance uh, by amongst other professionals, uh, because you probably can't do it on your own. You, pr you, you probably do need to collaborate with prof other professionals. Folks, we need to wrap up here, um, given the hour. Mm -hmm.